Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. When you travel with G Adventures, you do more than just see the world. You experience it. Sure, their small group tours take you places, but they also help you see them in a different way. That's because G Adventures believe travel should challenge you to understand that our world is bigger than you could have ever imagined. All you have to do is arrive with an open mind. Our world deserves more you. Visit gadventures.com.au for more. Hey there, listener. Nathan from Dumbo Feather here. This month on the podcast, we're sharing a conversation I feel very fortunate to have had with Irish theologian, poet, and mediator, Padraig Otuma. Padraig facilitates groups across the world, and for the past five years has led the Corimila community, which is Northern Ireland's oldest peace and reconciliation organisation. I first heard about Padraig through the podcast On Being. His conversation with host Krista Tippett stayed with me for months. It wasn't only this exceptional outer story he had to share about his life, of growing up gay in a conservative Catholic community, undergoing conversion therapies in his early 20s, and then beginning his journey to healing and wholeness. It was the inner story of what he shared too, about belonging and what our responsibilities are to one another. Padraig features in our current issue of Dumbo Feather magazine, which is all about courage. I marvelled at how very little of the territory in his article was crossed in our hour together for this event in Melbourne. It seems Padraig is always striving for new thresholds and new storylines in his life, offering the insights he gathers along the way with humility, warmth and humour. So I did want to start with uh, kind of exploring, you know, you know, throughout your story and the work you're doing, there is there is conflict and um, and division, both I think within yourself and now in the people that you're working with, the communities that you're working with. And I wanted to ask about this concept of reconciliation and what it means to do the work of, of reconciling, um, polarizing kind of opinions and, and feelings. Um. I really like how you went from reconciliation and your question there into the active verb, reconciling, because I think there's great wisdom in moving things from noun to verb. Uh, we began tonight with an acknowledgement of country on the Kulin Nation, lands never ceded, lands for which there was no treaty, and lands that there was claim for that has never been broken. And that is reconciling to acknowledge that. We won't ever get to the stage where we stop saying that. And that is one of the things involved in reconciling, is sitting with what Hannah Arendt said, the um, reality of the unchangeability of the past and the fact that we will live in debt to the death that we have created and the murders that our peoples have stood over and finding a way to acknowledge what can never be again and hoping that in responding with truth, with lament, with protest, with art, with pain, with all of the things that are needed, with healing, hoping that in responding with those kinds of things that we can create something courageous in the moment now that isn't that doesn't make up for what is taken away, because that's impossible, but it does respond with virtue now. And I think um, Corimila and me, I suppose, um, have always felt called to the places in Irish society where we have um, broken ourselves and broken each other. Uh, it's a nice idea to think that there's the possibility of um, living in places that have been unbroken, but so many parts of our society are broken. 
And I think it needs um, the capacity to courageously go there with a kind of a, a lived spirituality. I don't mean a spirituality that's beyond. I mean a spirituality that's here and now to say we're not frightened of fear. We are not um, made anxious by anxiety. We are not responding with hostility to hostility, but finding a brave way to go into those places in order to try to say things the likes of which haven't been said before in the hope that we can discover something that surprises us into the mystery of being human with each other together. I want to explore the components of good conflict resolution that you're doing in the work. And, um, you know, how you're helping people to come together in conversation, people from polarising kind of perspectives and, and backgrounds, uh, to arrive, not necessarily at a point of agreement, but of, of mutual respect and, and maybe even self-realisation. How do we do that, not only in therapy, uh, which is the work you're engaged in, but in conversations that we're having with one another in the world? Um, so there's various levels at which you can take conflict resolution. One of which is to think that, you know, so you and I, Nathan, we've had a conflict and then we want to come to resolution about it. And maybe it is that I realize, oh, I was wrong and our conflict is resolved because I realized that and something is settled down. Uh, that's one level of conflict resolution. Other levels of conflict resolution are realizing we, because of our background, because of our interests, because of history, because of something we can't explain, are going to be locked in the dynamics of conflict for a long time. And that might be peoples as well as people. And how do we exercise a verb of being um, in community with each other? How do we speak courageously to each other? How do I say the thing to you that I say about you? And how do I hear from you the things you say about me, but not to me? And how can we do that in a way where we have the possibility not only of thinking um, conflicts can be resolved when we come to consensus, okay, I messed up, I'm the wrong one. But when we realize that there's the possibility of no consensus and no common ground, can we practice something that still keeps us from entering into threat with each other even then? And so uh, real conflict resolution is about that lower level. Because it's easy, you know, if you and I think that the only way we can resolve our conflict is if we decide, oh, who's right and who's wrong? Yeah. Great. Um, but that means that we're frightened of times when we don't. Because we're desperate yeah. to go, who's right, who's wrong here? Who's right, who's wrong? But there's some conflicts that continue to undo us. Some conflicts that will be lost. Some conflicts where we've forgotten who started it. And they've gone on for so long. You think of British-Irish relations. Um, there's um, colonialism, of course. Uh, and then you try to go back into the vast history of blame. How do we, what, what, will solving who is to blame solve that? Uh, or do we have to find some way of new trust, new courage with each other, and new capacity to think, bloody hell, I admire you for the capacity to listen to the kind of things that mustn't be easy for you to listen to. And that is another kind of conflict resolution or conflict resolving um, because it is actively landing back into itself. And those are the kinds of conversations that are really, really difficult. And they don't appeal to tabloid and they don't appeal to um, ease of saying, okay, who's right and who's wrong? But they do bring us to some kind of new way of being human with each other in a way where we build trust for now and making more trustful nows creates a more trustful future. Mm, beautiful. And, and the work that we can do to arrive at that yeah. place. You've mentioned deep listening and, 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 and language, I think, is so important, the way that we communicate with each other and the words that we choose to use. Mm. Um, intentionality, how we arrive at these conversations with one another. Mm. What else have you learned in your work as a facilitator? Um, I'm always interested in story. How is it that um, yeah. uh, conflict, conflict will usually occur through story? Somebody will come home and say, wait till I tell you what happened to me on the bus today. And then a story will yeah. evolve. Or wait till I tell you what my asshole of a boss said to me today. Great. And then there we have this story. And so it's normally, it, it lands in story. Yeah. And part of the desire is to figure out how can we hold that story as plural? Um, can we be brave to think the story that we've only told in one way, we might want to tell it with a different tense, with a different point of view, with a new point of view, a new perspective? 
Can I be open to the possibility that somebody else might tell it in a different way? Can I be attentive to the flexibility of language? And can I have the courage, again, to tell this story to the person about whom I tell it? Mm. Um, what happens then? What would the openness be? Mm. Would I change the way that I tell the story? Would I be open to that? Um, would I be interested in the story finishing in a new way? And so for me, um, finding out the story at the heart of conflict is a really important thing. And that, I think that's appropriate when it's people in conflict, you know, two people or two peoples. But then similarly, when it's historical conflict, that will always land also in stories. Where do we begin to st tell the story of British-Irish relations? Where do you begin? People begin in different ways. You know, somebody will start off by saying, in 1968, Bombay Street exploded in West Belfast. Somebody else will say, in 1921, um, a British border was introduced into the island of Ireland. Somebody else will say, in 1801, the Act of Union was signed, or in 1607, Ulster was, par Ulster was planted. And we'll, we find ways in which even vast continents of pain land in singular stories. And it's a matter of trying to understand where those stories are and locating those stories and hearing them and appreciating them, A, for factuality, but B, for feeling. Mm. And then all the other layers of things in there too. Mm. Uh, I've been t teaching a class for the School of Life called Storytelling as Therapy, where we look at this inextricable link between the stories we tell and our identities. And this, uh, this notion that when we come to confront the truth of it is very powerful. Mm. The stories we tell about our lives uh, are uh. who we are. The stories we tell about our culture create the culture that we live in. And we talk about that a, a lot with Dumbo Feather, you know. The idea is that we are publishing stories um, that, that lead us, that will help us to live into a world that we think is more abundant for everyone and that enables humans to fulfill their, their, their potential mm -hmm. and, and, and come to flourish. And um, yeah, and I think yeah. that on an individual level, it's also the, the work of story is also incredibly powerful, helping to guide people to, to rewrite mm -hmm. um, their experience in a way that is always coming from a deep place of truth. And I think that is the challenge. Well, it comes from a deep place. I'm not sure it's truth. That's the problem, yeah. is that like, so Anais Nain said in The Seduction of the Minotaur, we do not tell stories as they are, we tell them as we are. And what happens when we have an addictive relationship to a certain version of ourselves? Yeah. We might tell a story that's pretty damn awful over and over and over again, where we create a, um, um, a monster against whom we need to tell our story. What happens when the deep sense of my identity as story is built on a fabrication or is built on the scapegoating of another. And that's the terrible thing. Story is so damned compelling, and I love it, but it is so damned dangerous also if we do not let it evolve. Because stories should change. Stories should open up to new endings. Stories should have the, the possibility of being malleable with each other. And when we find a situation where I need to tell my story in this way, and if I think of telling it in another way, I will feel like a traitor to myself, then there's the possibility of really missing out on some wisdom. The etymology of story comes from, um, well, part of the etymology of story has the verb to see and a noun for wisdom in it. So I like to think of story as being to see wisely, and that is never finished. I always need to be open to the possibility that there are new aspects to a story, even threatening aspects to a story, aspects that will cause me to re revise myself. And that feels true and risky, and that is what we're doing when we bring people into the deep work of conflict resolution with story is that they have to consider what happens if I have to learn a new beginning point or a new end point or a new point of view within the story that I thought was fixed. So, for instance, Irish people, we love to blame the British for our past. It's fantastic. It's a pastime. And, and let me tell you, I mean, I grew up speaking Irish. It's a terrible thing to have to learn a foreign language in your own country. It's a terrible thing that the, what Irish language would have been will never now be because of the way that the British made Irish illegal in our own country. Okay? So that is terrible. Okay? What we love to forget is that during the famine, which was another abomination, that in 1845 the Irish population was 9 million, by 1880 the Irish population was 4 million, 
A million died and a million left within the space of three years in a famine that didn't need to happen. It is not a potato famine. It was a, a policy famine because there was food enough to feed us the whole way through the Irish famine. There was absolutely food enough to feed us. So what we love to forget is that when the Irish went all over the world, um, the United States, Canada, Jamaica, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, but to take the example of the United States, when we went there, most Irish people got involved in, in supporting the slavery movement because it was beneficial in an abominable way to have a group of people below you. And when the Irish went overseas, we discovered that we were white. And that's, um, that is to our detriment. And we love to forget that part of the story as Irish people. We love to think, oh, racism only began in Ireland 20 years ago when a bit of change began to happen in the economics. Um, racism began in Ireland a long time ago with the way within which we became secondary participants in the colonial project. And that is an uncomfortable story that we have to learn how to tell about ourselves. And so for, that, that is an example for me about the way within which the Irish practice of recognizing the justice of analysis of how the 18th century and 19th century have influenced contemporary politics in Ireland and between Ireland and Britain and important as it is for Britain to know its past and often it seems like Britain doesn't it's also important for Ireland to know our past because we have found it convenient to forget it and to assume that because we were treated terribly in Europe that we somehow were exempt from treating other people terribly outside of Europe and that is not the truth. And the rewriting of that story comes from, from conversation. How, I mean, how does the culture start to... Oh, the history. I mean, I never learnt. I mean, we learnt all about the British presence in Ireland. We learnt all about the famine and Irish people going elsewhere. But there was very little analysis in our history courses in school about what were we like to the folks um, yeah. in these other countries where we went. Um, there is, I mean, in every bad barrel, and all the barrels are bad, there might have been a good apple. So you tend to learn the story of the good apple, and therefore you assume that the barrel was good and maybe there was a bad apple or two. No, the barrel and the apples were pretty bad. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's a, a real convenience in the way of telling the story of victimhood, and true as Irish victimhood was, we tell it in a way that that somehow made us virtuous when we went away, yeah. and that isn't true. Yeah. We need to be traitors to the stories that we've become used to telling Absolutely. about our collective yes. selves because there's the entire possibility that we're doing it for our convenience in a way that is actually shirking um, civic responsibility. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so much of this rings true for us in Australia as well. Well. But I want to um, draw down to your personal story and uh, I'd love to know when you come to understand the power of story in your own life, and, you know, I was reflecting on, on your story, and in many ways, my story mirrors yours. I also grew up in a small town in, in, in a Catholic community. I grew up gay, and in my, you know, in my early 20s, I, I got a lot closer to the church. I was still in the closet, and it was interesting that I got a lot closer to the church because I'd, I'd left, left home, and I was like, oh, I want to be in a, in a safe space and be somewhere that felt familiar. And then as soon as I, I came out, as soon as that kind of experience for me where I was able to articulate that I was gay and articulate that to my loved ones, I, I immediately distanced myself from, a church, from the church and rejected the church. Mm. And I found reasons to like hate it and you know, the discrimination. And you know, I, I went through the Bible and found passages that, uh, that kind of supported my, um, my, my rejection. And I look at your story and how you've come to reconcile your Irish Catholic faith and your, your sexuality. And, I guess I mean, that's a very big question, but I'm interested in the journey that you've been on and, and, and potentially the story, the role that story has played in that. Hmm. Uh, there's so many little landing points within yeah, the sure. context of that. Um, there was the first time that I heard the word homosexuality being said in public, and it was a word that instilled fear because I knew that I was whatever that was. And I was hearing it within the context in the 1980s and people were speaking about HIV and AIDS in a way that this was just an inevitability and there was, a, a, there was great fear of not understanding. Um, there was extraordinary um, scapegoating and demonization of um, entire populations of people. And then yeah, I got involved in a religious organization when I was 18 and um, I needed to identify that I struggled with homosexuality as the phrase was and exorcisms and reparative therapies were arranged and mandatory as a result of that and all of those things kind of fall into a great diabolical decade um, 
and it, it opened itself up for me with language. I was in reparative therapy and um, I had been going for about two years and the man who was the, I don't even like calling him a therapist because he hadn't done any qualifications <laughs> and he certainly wasn't repairing anything. Nothing was broken. Um, but uh, he, he had a predatory understanding about what it was that cure would look like in me. He was um, hoping that I might begin to be aroused around women that I knew. And he was asking me about women who were my friends and did I find any of them attractive and to describe the body of one woman or another that I knew um, and whether or not I wanted to find her body arousing. And I've, I found that really ugly. I, I loved my friends and I didn't like being forced by an older man to describe the bodies of friends in a way that was a hypothetical horniness. It just felt really wrong. Um, so I uh, thought about it, and then the next time I went back to him, I said, I need to tell you that I don't want to want to have the kind of sex that you're talking about. And he said, do you know what your problem is, Podrick? Your problem is language. And I felt really unqualified in psychology and theology, schools that he felt really, really, he, he claimed to be really qualified in. And I, I accepted that. I'm a good Catholic. I accept authority where it comes. And um, I didn't know, but it was true, that I had an indigenous sense of love of language. I grew up with Irish, had English, I learned French, loved French, and learned sign language also, not, not brilliantly, but enough to be able to make some pretty bad mistakes. And um, I felt f fluent in my love of language. He said, your problem is language, because he said, you just said that you don't want to have sex with a woman in the way. And he goes, have is a selfish verb. You shouldn't want to have sex with a woman. You should want to give sex to a woman. That's what he said. And I just thought, that's bullshit. Like, <laughs> you have literally plucked that out of thin air. And it's not even a good plucking out of thin air. Like, it's pretty meager and I got up and left um, and for me I, I really can trace pretty much everything to that moment wow. I left I got onto the number 16 bus went back to where I was living and I was living within a religious community I had nobody I could tell nobody because I knew that by saying that I'd walked out of this thing um, I the threat was being that I was that I would be fired and so um, I had nobody I could tell, but I knew this was a moment, and that was the exorcism wow. right there. Yeah. Um, fear was beginning to be exorcised. Yeah. Uh, the practice of courage, the practice of something that was life-giving, and the practice of going, look, I am not uh, particularly intelligent, but I know that's wrong. Yeah. And that was um, utterly empowering. I don't use the phrase regularly, but it honestly felt like being born again. Yeah and into a strange world, a frightening world, and a world where religion was actually the kind of devil that religion spoke about. And the world was far more friendly than the world that religion spoke about. And for me, there, that was the kind of moment. And theologically, to think about that then, I needed to think through, what is the quality of such conversions in a life? And how can we speak to each other where we say, how has your life converted you to a more courageous practice of your own self? Yeah. And that's a very interesting thing. It's a frightening thing, yeah. but it's a very interesting thing because there's no landscape for that. There's no map. Yeah. You feel alone. Yeah. So, so your, your impulse was, was similar to mine in the, in the, the feeling of rejecting, wanting to reject kind of everything you had come to believe. When did you come back into a relationship with Well, so I never wanted to reject um, oh, you didn't have the, the Gospels. You said something there that sounded... I never wanted to reject the Gospels. I did say about yeah. religion, but I suppose I never wanted to reject the Gospels or the character of Jesus of Nazareth. I find him endlessly compelling. Right. It's his followers that I find problematic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I never struggled with homosexuality. I struggled with people who struggled with homosexuality. And that was a realization that took me a very long time to discover. Um, a priest friend of mine said to me once, you're going to have to distance your relationship from the church in order to deepen your relationship with the gospel. And I said to him, 
you're asking me to become a Protestant. <laughs> and he said, nevertheless, unless you do this, you will not survive. And uh, he, he was like an oracle. He was so correct. And, and how do you navigate the challenges now? Of, of I, I imagine that, yes, you can share your, your love of Jesus Christ. Um, are you able to navigate the differences between not engaging fully with the Gospels as they are and the, or the followers or the way that the religion is taught and ex expected yeah. for us to experience? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking specifically with Cora Miller, and, and you know, that's, a, that's a Christian community, right? And, and yeah, sometimes. Kind of, okay, right. <laughs> I mean... I feel like there would have been challenges in, in yeah. this perspective you have. So, I mean, the genius of the Christian tradition is that there is this central, complicated character who was murdered by state torture and whose life embodied something that was um, as compelling as it was complicated. Mm. And there are four versions of a story about him, and those four versions are held together. And so what I love in the broader Christian tradition, and this isn't unique, you find this across all the great world traditions, is that there are, are already plural possibilities for telling the story. Mm. And that is to our benefit to, have, to begin in plurality. Part of the complexity is, is that I don't think that the contemporary Christian witnesses know the gospel very well. Right. People make shit up all the time about what they say Jesus said when he didn't say it. Yeah. Or people make certainties where that's pure interpretation. And it's, it might even be a good interpretation, but it's really worthwhile saying, we don't know what the death on the cross means. The New Testament itself hasn't a clue about what the death on the cross means. There's four versions about what the death on the cross means, and they never come up with an answer. Uh, isn't that extraordinary? And part of that requires one to know your text well and to know it well enough that you don't have an addictive relationship with it, and that it orients you to the world that we're in right now. That's what secularism is, to be present with your ideology, religious, political, personal, artistic, and to, be, to use that ideology in a wider conversation with your contemporary world. That's the definition right. of secular. Yeah. Secular isn't anti-religion. Secular is having whatever it is that you trust and love in conversation with the world within which you're in. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. So I feel like a very secular yeah. person yeah. because I have no desire to convert anybody. Yeah. Coronila began uh, by people who were inspired by the Gospels, but people who also knew we are pulling each other apart. We're murdering each other here. Mm -hmm. um, and this is unlikely to stop. And we need to find a better way to be with each other. And if whatever it is that we say we love in religion and ideology isn't orienting us towards the people we call our enemy, well, then that ideology or religion is um, insufficient. Yeah, amazing. You, um, you said something in this issue of Dumbo Feather in the, in the beautiful conversation you had with Julie. You, you were talking about gathering stories. And you said that it's okay to have a story that you feel gathered in by. But the question is, what's the morality of your relationship with people who live outside the borders of your gathering story? So it's this essential question of how we feel connected to the cultures and religions and nations we're a part of, um, but don't let that othering happen beyond that border. And I think it's a constant tension we're always struggling with. And, and I wonder, is the, the way we communicate with people within the gathering story really any different to the way we communicate with people who are outside of it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, borders are not necessarily a bad thing in and of themselves. Like, my skin is a border of me. I am not any of you. And so I, there's not the possibility that I am any of you, or you are me. Um, and so, therefore, understanding the limitation and the particularity of a thing, or of a gathering of people, in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But the, the attention toward the quality of the border relationships can people cross in and out of borders? Can you join a group and leave a group as easily as you joined it? Can you find a way where you can speak virtuously about people outside your group without threatening your belonging in the group? These are serious questions to ask. And when it is that my belonging in a group is dependent on me hating a particular chosen scapegoat, well, then you need to seriously question um, the quality of that belonging. Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of examples, but there are so many. I spoke in English once to a man who would much rather have spoken, wished 
I spoke in Irish to him, and um, he said to me, what's with all this anglicization? This is in West Kerry. And I said, I answered, no, show gomelish gael, you know, broner, sorry, excuse me. Um, and then he said to me, have you taken the soup? Which is a reference back to the famine when you would get soup if you converted to becoming a Protestant. And um, he very definitely was telling me, you're not in the group now. And I had been trying to make a connection with him. And I realized, oh, wow, I'm, I'm hated now. And I was embarrassed. Like, I did wish that I'd known that he would rather I speak in Irish, because I would, I would have been very happy to have done that. But I didn't know it. And to feel that is a powerful thing. And you learn all kinds of new rules in that moment. And it did not create community. It did not create relationship. It did not create curiosity. It did not create vulnerability. And it was a really... Um, fragile practice of masculinity also and we could have done so much better like we could have done so much better I I was hoping to make a friend and I didn't make a friend I mean I have that story and I hope that I might find a way to tell that story in a new way Mm. at some point in the future but I wondered if you'd share a poem along these lines I had written one down to this this tune Um, we are not the same (laughs) This poem I wrote in, um, in Queenscliff, actually, uh, years ago in 2013. I was um, on a, a three-month residency as poet-in-residence with the Uniting Church of Victoria in Tasmania and was invited to write a piece for the Uniting Church's witness to gay pride, I think it was. And so that's where it came from. And I hear regularly people saying, we're all the same, it's fine, we're all the same. And it does have a slightly maniacal tone to it when people say that. And I think I'm definitely not like you (laughs) when people say that. Um, Because that just, I'm not the same as myself. I, and I hope not to be. And so sameness, common ground, consensus, they are lovely things when they work. But if that's the only thing that's imagined to work, we're really screwed because we will meet people who are not the same. We will meet people with whom it seems like we have no common ground and with whom it seems like consensus is not going to ever happen. And and community, peace, um, democracy, sharing, all of these important words need to be sufficient in those contexts outside of sameness. Um, as well as it's lovely when somebody's the same, but it should also be lovely when there's something new. So, So we're not the same. We're not the same. If we think we are, we end up playing games where dignity is dependent on some flimsy proof. And dignity is not a game that can be won or lost because we know this truth. Winners always define glory and losers always suffer loss. Rather, we are us, not because of anything, just because, just because, just because anything less than this demeans us, everything less than this depletes us. And in this space of sharing, there are various types of people, loving people, loving people. And while we're not the same, our intrinsic worth is equal. We are less if we accept anything less than equal. So something that's impossible not to talk about with you and has already come up already is your love of language and your sense that I've felt quite a a bit of late that language can limit us, contain us. And for a while I thought, oh, words aren't the best way of communicating. You know, there's so much we're missing out on in terms of the way the body communicates and the body language and the nuance of, the, of what can happen when we're not using our words. And then I, I, I've been reading your poetry and, and listening to your conversations and I came to see just how amazing it is when you use the right word. You know, your vocabulary is so rich. Use the right word at the right time for the right moment. I remember reading somewhere that it's been, it's come from a, you've been writing poetry since a child, right? Or you've been, this love yeah. of language stems yeah. right back, yeah. I mean, from the, age, from the age of five, 
in the Irish education system, you're learning poetry off by heart every week in two languages. And that's just good for your vocabulary. Yeah. Um, when I was a school chaplain, we were looking at the Gospels one day, and an 11-year-old said to me, we were looking at the feeding of the 5,000, an extraordinary time when a poor person, a poor child, inspired generosity amongst a lot of people, mm -hmm. you know, by saying, well, I've got this, and everybody was like, oh, I've got this, you know. Um, and so we were looking at this, and this 11-year-old said to me, could Jesus just, like, pop out a pizza whenever he wanted? <laughs> and, like, the alliteration, <laughs> pop out a pizza. It was delicious. And this was from an 11-year-old. Like, he was genius. Um, and so literature and the, the poetry you'll pull down off a shelf or the literature you read will never come close to the brilliance of human language. Yeah. Like, there are writers that would spend a year waiting for that kind of robust character that has just yeah. entered your imagination yeah. right now, that boy saying, could Jesus pop out a pizza? And he was deliberate, because he didn't really believe in Jesus. He didn't give a damn about religion. And he was taking the piss by using these brilliant words. And I loved him. I thought he was genius. <laughs> I was on a bus once, and I hate being late, and I was late. And this is in the days before mobile phones, and there was the quintessential little old lady sitting next to me. She was in her 80s, I would imagine. And um, as we were nearing my stop, I was looking at my watch regularly. I clearly must have been communicating anxiety. And she said to me, here, son, will you stay on the bus a bit longer with me because I need help carrying me shopping. I was like, oh, I'm going to be late. And nobody's invented a mobile phone yet. So anyway, uh, of course you say yes, yeah. of course. And I stayed on four or five stops later. And we got off the bus. And she picked up her bag of shopping, and it was about as heavy as this glass was. She did not need any help, and um, I carried it. She linked her arm through mine, trotted along, delighted with herself. And um, as we were walking towards our house, somebody who was a neighbor was walking the other way, and this neighbor said to the woman who was on my arm, How are you, Mary? And Mary looked at her neighbor, looked at me, and looked back at her neighbor and said, Some girls never lose their touch. Now that is language. Some girls never lose their touch. Six words. Like, that puts Ernest Hemingway on a shelf. And she is genius. And that is what interests me in language. Of course, I love learning languages. I love vocabulary. I love grammar. I love all these kinds of things. But all of those things are just the magic to get you there. It's the way to get the electricity going, where you, somebody was tired, and because of something somebody said, you're not tired anymore. Yeah. Like that is the magic. Yeah, yeah. And that happens on every bus, on every tram, in every family, yeah. in every friendship. And it's to be alert to those kinds of things. That is the delicious delight yeah. of being alert to language. Yeah. It, was, it reminds me of something you actually said in your conversation with Julie how in the work you do in facilitation is really to invite people to say something new, something that they've never even heard themselves say out loud before. And on the surface, that can feel like quite a, a trivial thing, like just to say something new. And I was really thinking about that, and I was like, okay, so when you actually say something new, you actually, you actually see your potential to create something new. It's a creative process, right? And suddenly you understand that your potential is, is unlimited and that you can start thinking about the world in a different way and that, you know, who knows what the outcomes are of, of that slight kind of shift in, yeah. in using new language and seeing how you can build the world. Yeah. I've been listening to RN. I love RN. I think it's a brilliant radio um, station. And I love the extended um, uh, interviews on the RN breakfast, pro breakfast show with um, Fran Kelly. And I, I, I love listening to them. And obviously with the election coming up and question about green policy being particularly in the air here, um, it's interesting to hear how people who've been brought on for dialogues on the radio, sometimes it feels like you could write the script before they come on. And what interests me in public language is, who is it in public language is saying something where people were like, well, I wouldn't have expected you to have said that. Yeah. Like, isn't that interesting? The courage to ask a question where you know you don't know the answer is something that is sorely lacking in civic life these days. When I work with people who've come from 
different sides of a murder, for instance, uh, perpetrator and victims, families. And we are looking, hopefully, for something surprising to be said when we do dialogues between people who've come from across that. When I'm bringing people together who have been very vocally and civically, very vocal about their disagreement with LGBTQI people, and we bring them together with LGBTQI people, the hope is, is that we can't write the script in advance. And facilitation is the art, hopefully, of inviting us to try to do something where we say something which surprises us all, even ourselves, and opens us up where we thought, oh, I wouldn't have expected you to have asked that. And where you ask a question where you know you don't know the answer, that is, that's really worthwhile using language for that. Because that is the kind of power that might support us. So much of the way that language is used in public is for trapping people, which is a really, really immature kind of power to try to trap you in a corner with language. Um, you know it, I know it, it's a big game, you're prepared for it, I'm prepared for it, do you know? Mm. And afterwards we do a kind of a post-match analysis. That's so, it's so boring. Yeah. What would it be like if you came away, if I, had been, if I had been really hurtful to you previously and when we had a conversation about it, you came away going, he said something that really surprised me yeah. and it moved me and I didn't know what to say back. Yeah. Like, wouldn't that be an interesting way to resolve differences between people and to curate public conversations about things that really matter, like, you know, the past, colonization, the environment, safety, um, economic disparities, these things that are seriously important. Mm. And I mean, all of this is courageous work. Mm. You know, there's a, a beautiful man in this issue as well called Hunter Johnson. He's working with young men to essentially get them to also take their masks off in schools. Um, and step into a more vulnerable sense of themselves and not keep performing the ideas of masculinity that they have. And that is courageous work, and it's the work that we are called to do, I think, yeah. at this and time. Often when we think of language, people think, oh, I don't have a, a good vocabulary. But courage and language doesn't require vocab a great vocabulary. Mm. It, it actually requires um, the capacity to just say, here's what I don't know, here's what I think, Here's my question, here's my hope. Mm. Um, and that takes much more than a vast vocabulary. Mm. That takes the capacity to say, I have a question. Mm. Beautiful. Oh, I did want to ask you about the storytelling nights that you're running. 10 uh, x 9? 10 by 9. 10 by 9. Yeah. yeah tell us so Paul is my partner, and uh, almost nine years ago now, uh, we were at a wedding in County Galway, and uh, the morning of the wedding, Paul said, we should start a storytelling night. I was like, I mean, I start these various things all the time. Paul is not a starter. And I was surprised over breakfast to hear this new idea. And um, I said, what do you mean? And he went, I want to hear true stories from people's lives. So over the next half an hour, we came up with a format. We called it 10 by 9. Nine people with up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their life. Yeah. And we started it in September 2011 in Belfast. And now it's the biggest monthly arts night in Belfast. Um, I mean, we don't own Story, but we do certainly own this format. And so we have licensed it um, very particularly because we're very keen that it's never used for recruitment, even to good purposes. Because right. I think if you heard a great night of stories and at the end somebody said, and we meet on a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, yeah. you'd all feel violated. And rightfully so, because Story opens up extraordinary yeah. vulnerability in telling as well as listening. We open our hearts to a story. Yeah. So in January, the theme that we had in Belfast was pets. And the stories people told about their pets were beautiful. One man spoke about, um, in his family in 1977, they had a little dog, a very gentle little terrier. And one night the dog went wild. And the dog was not the kind of dog that would do that. And about 20 seconds later, the house blew up because his parents were um, were considered to be legitimate targets by a paramilitary organization. And so somebody was trying to plant a bomb in the garage in the house, and because the dog went wild, they planted the bomb in the car outside instead. The car blew up, the house was wrecked, but the ho nobody died. And everybody would have died had the bomb been planted. And then he said that um, the dog had a nervous shake for the rest of its life. <laughs> and, and you were just brought into the tenderness of this terrier who from 1977 to 1982, when the dog died, the dog had a nervous shake. 
we don't need to know what that story means because we already know what it means. Even in a little synopsis, you know that. And the, the power of story to gather people together is extraordinary. A couple of weeks ago in Belfast, um, a journalist, Lyra McKee, was murdered. And on the day of her funeral, and I was at her funeral, um, we happened to have a 10 by 9 planned for that night. And the theme was guilt. And we had our full quota of stories filled up before Lyra was even murdered. And um, the amount of stories that night that were about feeling guilty about the ongoing legacy of conflict. And it just felt like a healing space. And not because anybody tied it all up in a lovely now. We can all go home feeling a little bit better about ourselves. We couldn't. We had just buried somebody who shouldn't have been murdered that day as a wider society. But somehow story had the capacity just to make us feel we can land into the reality of this, we can tell the truth of this, we can sit in the pain of this, we can sit hopefully in being inspired to try to make a change yeah. also. Yeah. So. This, this work that you do, is, it's, it's heavy, right? I mean, it's, it feels heavy a lot of the time. And I, I was thinking about how you experience lightness and joy because you also seem to have a really beautiful, bright spirit. And you, you know, this love of whiskey that I seem to read in every conversation you have. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I wonder, is that something conscious that you kind of carve out in your life to, to ensure that there is, there is lightness there? Or if that is kind of just inherent now in, in the way you are? I mean, I, I think to celebrate love is the only way that you can live a life. And love calls you to great lament, it calls you to great courage and truthfulness, and it also calls you to lots of meals. It calls you to buy a kitchen table that's bigger than the one you think you should buy, and to have a few more chairs than you think you need, because you will want to invite new people around that table, and to bring people together for curry and soup and whiskey and sparkling water, tea, whatever, it doesn't matter. Finding ways to celebrate community, that is the, that is the hearth of what it means to be human together. And so with that comes great music and delight and art. And I think knowing that that's the kind of thing that we are made for, I think we're made for nights around tables where we know some people and we don't know others. We encounter new stories where the heart is opened. You go home fill, filled with food and story. We're made for that. And everything else is an interruption, a serious interruption that requires significant attention. But I think it is a good idea to know where we came from and what we're for. And I think the table and the table of hospitality is a pretty damn doctrine to hold as the image about what humanity can be with ourselves. Can you share? I didn't ask you to read too many poems throughout that, but um, maybe That's just to, to conclude to our conversation. What <laughs> um, we do true for all of us. Um, so for my first year working as poet in residence with Carmela, I was working with a, two communities of people from two neighbouring villages. There had been a murder between these two villages and one was a pretty nationalist Catholic Irish village, the other was a pretty um, unionist Protestant British village, two miles between, and there had been really good community relations. And then, like some diabolical bad story, a couple, a young couple, one from one village, one from the other, um, a family member of that couple murdered one of them while they were in bed together. And that caused the years and years of really good community relations between these two villages to disintegrate immediately, as you can understand. Um, and then with great courage, within a year or so, community members thought um, of these two villages thought, we need to do the work of rebuilding. We can't let this be the thing that tears us apart. So they invited Coromila to come in and support them in that, but it was their initiative, and it's really important to say they were the one who were saying, we want to rebuild this together. And so I, for about a year, every week, I was involved with a woman called Susan McEwen, who was a Car used to be a Coromila um, program lead. Um, we, and uh, with a sketch artist, went and listened to people all the time and heard stories. And there was a woman called Enid who was a Protestant woman and she was blind and she was describing how, she was describing through the lens of disability um, what it was that she knew of the troubles and what it was that as a blind Protestant woman she could do that other Protestant women wouldn't be able to do in terms of asking questions or going places. And she was saying that she had moved to England when she was younger and was doing a course in, I can't remember what the course was, 
But um, she found out later on that the woman who ran the hostel where she lived followed her most mornings to the bus to make sure she'd got on the bus. Now, she didn't need anybody to follow her. She was perfectly capable and thoroughly independent. This was in the 70s when this was happening. And so she told this story, and it was beautiful. And at the end of the story, Enid said, isn't it it true for all of us that we need somebody like that in our lives? Uh. And so that's where this poem came from. And isn't it true for all of us? And isn't it true for all of us that we need someone to watch us when we leave and when we need to make our own way home and when we're making something we can't see or when we're shaping up to be a person who can feel a hundred sorrows and still get through the day, who can dream a hundred sorrows and make it anyway? Isn't it true for all of us that we need a guiding other, maybe mother, maybe lover, maybe nothing other than a stranger who could see our fear and with kindness then unfold a welcome? Isn't it true for all of us that we need our secrets told and that without another to bear witness to the children that were never born, we would never be a grown-up? We would be alone and lost and cold. There would be childish hungers left inside of us, needing to grow old. You can read more about Padraig and other courageous humans in our current issue of Dumbo Feather. Subscribe before June 30 and you'll receive a sweet little notebook we made, which is full of quotes from Dumbo Feather interviews to deepen your reflections. Padraig has a number of books you can get your hands on of both poetry and his personal storytelling. And you can go to his website, padraigotuma.com, to find out more. Big thanks to Lizzie Martin for editing this podcast for us and Dennis Liu for the music. If you like what we do at Dumbo Feather, please support us by becoming a subscriber. We deliver worldwide. <laughs>